Welcome to the Seattle Public Library's podcasts of author readings and library events, a series of readings, performances, lectures, and discussions. Library podcasts are brought to you by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation. To learn more about our programs and podcasts, visit our website at www.spl.org. To learn how you can help the Library Foundation support the Seattle Public Library, go to foundation.spl.org. The podcast you are about to hear was recorded in 2011. Good afternoon. Today we have um, a wonderful presentation about a new book that's just come out, Seattle Geographies, and we have Elliott Bay Books here to make sure you all have your own copy. So please uh, stop by when the uh, lecture's over and take a look at this great book. We also want to thank the University of Washington Press for being such a force in our community to get books like this edited and prepared and available for all of us. And we have a couple people from the press here today. And thank you for being such great uh, assistance to this community. Seattle Geographies explores the human geography of the city and region to examine why Seattle is Seattle. The contributors to this volume look into Seattle's social, economic, political, and cultural geographies across a range of scales from neighborhoods to the world. They tackle issues as diverse as economic restructuring, gay space, trade with China, skateboarding, and pea patches. They apply a geographic perspective to uniquely Seattle events and movements, such as the WTO protests and grunge. They also look at homelessness, poverty, and segregation. Guided by a strong sense of accountability to place, these geographers offer a wide, multifaceted portrayal of the city and its region. Our speakers today are Michael Brown, who is a professor of geography at the University of Washington, uh, specializing in health and sexuality in Seattle. Um, he is going to further define geography for us. Um, Vicki Larson, also a professor in geography at the university, specializes in poverty and equality, and not just here in Seattle, but on all parts of the globe. And Richard Morrell is also a professor emeritus at, uh, in the Department of Geography at the UW. And his strengths and research are population in the news. So if you look in the newspaper or new things that are happening, such as redistricting, and we know we're all interested in that, and implications um, that that may have uh, to our political environment. So I would like to invite them to begin, and I don't, I think, Michael, Michael's first, and we'll have uh, Ratish in our booth taking care of our lights today. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you all for coming. Um, welcome to January, as I call it. Uh, I want to start by thanking the Seattle Public Library and Elliott Bay Books for hosting us. It's very generous of them. Uh, and what I'll do is I'll start off with a brief kind of overview of the book and the discipline of geography and then introduce uh, Dick and Vicki and we'll each talk for about 10 or 15 minutes on different sections of the book just to give you a taste, just to give you a teaser. Deadly boring, but maybe not. Here's a table of contents. It's all over the map. It's 
as they say in Australia, a dog's breakfast. Wheat to wine, rethinking the rural, who's public space, resegregation of schools, coffee in the Microsofty. What's the unifying theme? What, what holds this book together and this intellectual community together? Well, let me start by explaining uh, the purpose of the book, why we came together to write it. The book really has three audiences. Uh, the first audience is, we wrote it for each other. As you can see, we're a group of people with widely divergent interests, and we're all housed up on uh, the top of Mount Smith, on the fourth floor of Smith Hall. Uh, and even though we're in close physical proximity to one another, we often don't uh, get a chance to understand what each other is working on, what our students are doing, and so on, and so, or each other's students are doing, and so on, and so on. So we wrote it for each other to kind of uh, build some intellectual community. Also on that point, it is the 75th anniversary of the geography department here at University of Washington, and we wanted to do something to celebrate uh, that milestone. As well, the Association of American Geographers, which is our sort of professional association, held its annual meeting here in Seattle this year. The last time it was here was in 1974, and the city certainly changed since then. And uh, so we wrote this book also for our colleagues around the globe, something like uh, 7,000 geographers. Who knew that there were 7,000 geographers in the planet? But there are, uh, descended on Seattle in um, early April. And uh, so we wrote this to kind of give them uh, our sense of what the city and its region and its context were all about. The second audience we wrote this book for were our students. We are a department that does a lot of teaching and we take it very seriously. And uh, we always try to link it to our research. And so this book will be used in courses. Uh, it's specifically used right now in Geography 490, a course that Dick created before he retired called the Seattle Region, uh, where the students go out into the community and develop their own research on uh, pressing social issues. And this book is kind of the springboard towards that. And then the third audience, probably the most important, is uh, you. It's the people of the region. Folks at uh, the geography department often phrase their research and teaching in terms of accountability to place. Uh, we feel a deep responsibility to address uh, social, economic, political, and cultural issues and inequalities. And this book is a reflection of that. And at a time when um, higher ed is under increasing pressure and questioning about what we do and how we use our resources, we thought this, this book would be a good example to show folks what it is, just what it is UW geographers do and how we are engaged in many scales from the neighborhood all the way up to the globe in and through this place called Seattle. The book has multiple authors. There are 45 authors in total. And as an intellectual community, we came together to write it across faculty, graduate students, both present and former students, as well as undergrads. The chapter on cultural geographies is largely written by the undergraduate uh, honors group from last year. And our Dick's and my vision with the project was to give people free reign to just say, we want this book to be about Seattle and its region, however you define it, and whatever you think is most important to address to write about. And you'll leave it to us 
to edit it and organize it together. And so we've used some fairly standard disciplinary branches to organize it, but we really, it was an inductive process. It was really from the ground up. We let people follow their own nose and talk about what they thought was most important or interesting. But I still haven't told you what geography is. So let me spend the next five minutes or so uh, trying to convince you that there is a coherent whole here. Uh, it's just not in the form that we might usually recognize it in. So if you think of a geographer, right, you might think of this guy. This is Jules Vermeer's painting of the geographer from 1668. And it connotes geography's origins in the European Academy in higher education as a discipline that was in service to European exploration, expansion, colonialism, and imperialism. Here, geography is about discovering faraway places, but, one, but an interest that combines both an interest in the physical and the human worlds. You might know geography from that class you vaguely remember from seventh grade, and that before you started taking various history courses. In the, in the uh, 1920s, when social science was being, uh, social studies was being developed in American public education, um, geographers weren't interested and historians dominated social, uh, social studies. So uh, Americans tend to get a lot of history compared to geography. But it was also this kind of geography that put geography under threat. Uh, this is the geography where you had to memorize state capitals, where you had to uh, remember regional inventories of imports and exports, dry, dusty factoids. Knowledge that's pretty good for trivial pursuit, but perhaps not of science or, or even an art. And geography's changed since then quite a bit, uh, not least of which uh, because of uh, colleagues like Vicki Lawson and Dick Morrill. And so nowadays we think about geography much more dynamically, much more synthetically, much more holistically. The philosopher Immanuel Kant said, all the social sciences divide themselves up by topic. Economics studies the economy, political science studies politics, and so on and so on, except for two of them, history and geography. Because what they do is they look at everything, but from a particular perspective. History looks at the temporal unfolding of human and natural events. Geography looks at the spatial unfolding of human and natural events. So nobody asks a historian what they do or why they study what they study, but everybody asks a geographer, why do you study skateboards? Why do you study poverty? What does that mean? Right? So history is to time, geography is to space. Here's a textbook definition when I teach intro to geography. Geography is a study of the spatial organization of human activity. Again, you have that looking at things in terms of their spatial relationships with each other or their scalar situation from the local all the way to the global. But also the nature-society relationship, the fact that everything that is natural is social and everything that is social is also natural, right? And yet we still need this kind of dividing marker. So we look at the relationship between the natural and the social as well. That's a, that's a fundamental branch of geography. If you have uh, children, you might be aware of the five themes of geography from the National Council of Geographic Education, which is an elementary school organization. This focus on spatiality and nature society coalesces around five themes or five, five sort of points of focus. So if you're, if you're reading a geographer's work, these themes often will, will 
structure the, the view uh, of what they're saying. Location, in other words, where in space is this thing and what are the causes and consequences of that location. Place, this sort of coming together in a culturally meaningful context, right? We know that Seattle and Boston are cities that share some characteristics, but in other ways they're quite unique from one another. That's get, teasing all that stuff out is about place. Nature society, I already spoke to. Movement, the circulation and transmission of people, things, goods, commodities, ideas, what have you, between places or locations in space. And then finally, region, sort of large, uh, integrated, functional uh, pieces of the globe that integrate both human, physical, economic, social, cultural, political units. But this last one is my favorite. This was, uh, geography is what geographers do. This is what, uh, when I was an undergrad, uh, trying to figure out just what the heck this discipline was. It seemed really interesting. That gave me incredible liberty to study whatever I wanted to do, whatever I wanted to study. But I had a hard time figuring out just what the, what the core, what the common focus is. And he said, just don't worry about it. Geography is what geographers do. And so what I'm going to invite you to do now is to listen to some of the things that geographers do. So I'll turn it over now to Dick. Thank you, Michael. Well, uh, I'm the patriarch of this department now, and I've uh, been here since uh, 1955, so it's year 56. And one of the interesting things about our department is that we're not in the ivory tower, but we use the region we're in, the place we're in, from every little scale, from our block to the, to the North Pacific Northwest, as a laboratory for, for our research and our teaching. And so we've thought about a book on Seattle for probably 30 years, and we keep putting it off because we're so busy with our classes and our teaching and our own research. But uh, we decided that since we've done all this local work and we love this place, we felt we have a responsibility to actually get something out. And so we finally, a couple of years ago, took it, the, the idea seriously and, and enlisted, as Michael said, 45 faculty and students to actually put together this wonderfully eclectic book. And you'll notice this is not the geography of, of the fourth or seventh grade, and we use the term geographies. And what we're talking about is, is how the people in this region actually use and compete and organize themselves in this territory, and what's the outcome of these little disputes and battles and competition among people for space and place. I'll give you a couple examples. Uh, the sections I'm worked on include um, mainly what's called social geography. That has to do with people and their characteristics and political geography, which you probably get a better sense of, of, of government and, and politics and elections. Well, in, in the social geography is actually the biggest section in probably 20 or 30 people who have worked on it. This includes uh, things which seemed fairly traditional, like, um, like the distribution of people, which areas are crowded, which areas are relatively sparse, and, and do people care about that? We look at differences by age, and we certainly look at differences by household types. Why do married people live some places and single people live others? And uh, 
why did, and we look very much at the differences in income and prosperity at the competition between people that results in the segregation by by class between rich areas and poor areas. And we look at the history and from for at least 75 years of the history of segregation in this region on a racial and ethnic basis, including some wonderful maps dating, including things like uh, whether areas of restrictive covenants were as recently as 1970, hard to believe. Well, then uh, and I'll say a little bit, tiny bit about political geography. And this is what I've done a tremendous amount of work in recently. I have a conference coming up on redistricting. Uh, I've been involved in redistricting in this issues in the state since the 1970s and continue to do many projects on, on this. Uh, parties love to uh, manipulate the territory so that they can maximize their party's strength. And that's one of the things we study. Uh, another aspect of political geography is how we organize space in jurisdictions. Why do we have 54 cities and why do we have uh, several hundred special districts? This is the region most dependent on special districts in the country. Why do we create all these crazy units of government? Uh, I, among other things, I've worked on trying to create metropolitan governance. We've never gotten very far in that, but we've made a little bit of progress. We can cooperate. The first example of cooperation was actually forced on us, and that was the, uh, when the individual cities were all dumping the sewage into Lake Washington and Elliott Bay, the, the state finally ordered the region to create metro to clean up the sewers, and that was the sort of the beginnings of a little bit of, of regional cooperation. So we look at jurisdictions, and the last big area I look at is electoral geography, and that is how people vote. And why, why is Seattle so democratic? Just from the point of view of who lives there, that doesn't make sense. There's something about the place that attracts and makes people be, uh, leads people to behave a certain way. In contrast, why we're discovering that some of the outer areas of the county tend to vote heavily Republican, even though their income may not suggest that they should. So we're interested why people vote the way they do and the patterns and opportunities this creates for politicians. And of course, that, I think that's enough. I'll leave. I'll give to Vicky to take over at a more of a regional scale, including our out into the rural countryside. Hello. Give me one second. I'll find. I think I'll find some pictures. Yeah. There we go. So I'm going to talk about the chapter on rural geographies, and that may seem a little ironic since the book is titled. Seattle geographies, but as Bill Cronin taught us in a book called Nature's Metropolis, a city lives on its region. It lives on the relationships between the city and the country. It lives on flows of people and goods and culture and activities that cross the rural-urban divide, which is really no divide at all. And so um, our chapter tries to make sense of what was go what's going on in the broader northwest region and, and what that perhaps has to tell us about Seattle as well. Um, I'm very proud of this chapter. As you can see from this long list, it's a collaboration. Uh, and this list includes not only myself and colleagues, but our graduate students and their students. So this is a sort of multi-generational uh, effort, which I'm very proud of, just in and of itself. Um, the research that forms the basis, this isn't a very researchy chapter. Um, it's written um, in a more sort of popular uh, voice, if you will, but the work comes from a research project 
that was funded by the NSF a while back. And I realize this is a, a daunting table, but I'll just leave it up there while I speak, uh, just to set things up a little bit. So one of the things that the Department of Geography at the UW is interested in is what we call accountability to place, which means we're interested in uh, real-world questions and problems uh, to which we might have something to say. And one of the kinds of issues that many of us are interested in is in these very diverse landscapes of wealth and poverty across our region. And we're interested in figuring out why they look the way they do. Um, now, this particular table doesn't speak to wealth and poverty, but it speaks to something that has to do with wealth and poverty, and that is the dramatic changes in the rural counties. This is the non-metro counties, right? These are rural spaces of Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Montana, so the sort of broadly taken northwest region. And what's interesting here is if you rank counties by how fast they're growing in terms of population, or how fast they're not growing, uh, you can come up with a list of the top 10. There are over 150 rural counties in the region. And we took the top 10 fastest growing and the bottom 10, those growing or actually declining in population, as a way into what's going on in the region. What is the pattern? What are the pictures? One of the things that's true is over the last two decades, the Northwest has been growing very rapidly as a, as a whole. This is a part of the country that's attracting um, new migrants, new businesses. It's an area that's quite dynamic. But the interesting thing is that the growth doesn't focus everywhere. And if you know the rural part of this region, you know this, that there are certain places that draw wealth uh, particular kinds of migrants, particular kinds of tourists, and there are other places that really are not uh, are growing or attracting people in quite the same way. Another thing that you may or may not know is that the Northwest region is one of the fastest growing parts of the country in terms of Latino immigrants. And I'm not just talking about people who move through in the agricultural economy, but in people who are settling and staying in uh, smaller communities as well as larger ones in the region. So very fa fast growing. It's a very patchy kind of growth. It's in some places and not others. And that there's a very large growth it's not a large percentage-wise yet, but there's a rapid growth in Latino populations in the region. So our prompt for this chapter was to try and make sense of these uneven geographies, both of population growth and particularly of the question of wealth and poverty. What we wanted to do in part was dig a little deeper than the classic idea nationally about our region. I mean, we're all here perhaps because we love it. I, for one, am in love with the, the landscapes, the culture, all of it. That is the Northwest. I find this place quite magical. I'm originally from England, and I travel uh, for my job, and I'm always very, very, very happy to come home. I mean, there's something special uh, beyond even Mount Rainier, but there's just something about this place that, that I find quite magical. And this is, if you ask people around the country what they know about the region, They'll probably talk about the Cascades and beautiful places. They'll probably talk about Boeing. Now they might talk about Microsoft and Amazon. Uh, they might talk about the city of Seattle. 
And that's a sort of, and, and frankly, we trade on that. We trade on that as, uh, as a tourist economy. Uh, we trade on that in terms of bringing in investment. You know, this, this happy story about the place and its dynamism and its beauty and its environmental sort of crunchy granola kind of ethic and politics and so on. That's sort of the story that's out there. But we, uh, in this research project, actually wanted to understand what the landscape of wealth and poverty looks like in our region. Um, and the first thing we did was very, very simple. We mapped poverty outside the city in rural areas. We simply mapped it by county. And then we mapped it for white people and Latino people and Native American people. And we found, and I didn't somehow expect this, but perhaps you would, really different maps. So the map of rural white poverty looks very different from the map of rural Latino poverty. They're not in the same places. And that prompted us to ask some questions. Well, what's going on? Why is that the case? And as we did our research, sort of beyond that initial prompt by the map, we started doing uh, in-depth work in a range of very different counties, some with high white poverty, some with high Latino poverty, some that were amenity places, places you might think of, Bend, Oregon, uh, Gallatin County, Montana, in eastern Washington, the Kittitas Valley has become very popular, et cetera, et cetera, Metau Valley in, in Washington, places like that. So we went to a lot of these different kind of places to try to figure out what these very different maps were all about. And we came up with um, a way of thinking about the rural geography of wealth and poverty. And we came up with three kinds of spaces that seem to exist and repeat across uh, the Northwest. The first of these is called playground places. These are very fast-growing places, islands of affluence. They attract uh, lone eagles and high flyers. They attract uh, people who are no longer tied to a location for their job and can work. Uh, we, we talk about going from cowboys to modem cowboys, you know, people that can live off their modem and so can live where they wish. Uh, there's also a large flow of fairly wealthy white migrants, uh, uh, retiree migrants into certain amenity communities. So, and there are just you know, the sort of Hollywood investments in the ranches of Montana, etc. So there are these places that draw in wealth and draw in new people, change those places quite dramatically in terms of the politics of conservation, uh, who can afford to live there, the property tax base shifts, and so on. So. One of the sort of stories of the map of wealth and poverty in the region is these playground places or islands of affluence. But there are two other stories to tell. And one of these is about places that we, we call dumping grounds. And these are rural counties that may be growing. They may be growing. But what they, they attract is a very different suite of activities. So they are the places that are making their new economy on the back of NIMBYs, of activities nobody wants. So uh, thousand-head pig farms or dairies. Um, there's a massive growth in pr rural prison development, not only in our region, actually, but across the country. And so there's a story in there about uh, this prison in particular uh, done uh, by one of our doctoral students. And what she found was that in the 1990s, there was a massive investment in new prisons in the United States, with over 350 being built. And there was actually a period in the 1990s when 15 Every 15 days, a new prison was opened in a rural place. Why? Well, it has to do in part with the sort of tradition, the decline of the traditional sources of income in these rural places and the struggle for new sustainable models to grow. 
So the dairies I mentioned, some kinds of food processing activities, and it turns out prisons are a growth strategy for some declining rural counties. They bring in investments, uh, they bring in new people, uh, they supposedly create jobs. But actually the story of this particular prison, it was completed in 2007 and it still stands empty. If you want to know why, read the book. Um, the third, uh, and then actually another story about um, dumping grounds. And this is a story about a small town in Oregon. And the story is about the settling of Latino form, former migrants or actually uh, US citizens who moved to the region uh, who wanted to settle in uh, this small community. And this is a story about the struggle over housing politics and the resistance to uh, providing low-income housing for Latino workers who have traditionally worked in rural spaces in low-income jobs and have difficulty affording uh, the kind of housing that they might otherwise afford with a well-paid job. And so this is a story about the struggles over race and poverty in rural Northwest and how that got resolved and how the struggle played out um, as as people who were formerly migrant workers, used to be just men who came and did the work and went away, but now increasingly there are families that are settling in the Northwest. Um, and the question of how to improve on this um, and to think about the new demographic of who uh, Latino migrants to our region are and how they fit into our communities. The final, so. Playgrounds, dumping grounds, the nimbyism, the building new economies from sort of low-wage jobs and the struggles that that creates and the kinds of poverty that that reflects. And the final kind of space we found in the Northwest were what we called unseen grounds. And these are places that are just kind of off the grid. Um, the highway passed them by in the, in the federal highway building period. The railroad dried up. Um, they're short on water. They're dry land ranches that can't really make a comp competitive living in today's farming agroeconomy. Um, they're small towns. They're places that are almost uh, rolling up and blowing off the map. And we talk about how, what their history is, how they came to be these kinds of places. And these places, what we call the unseen grounds in places like eastern Montana, are the places of highest white poverty. And again, uh, if you want to know more about why there are high white poverty, I encourage you to read the book. So what I'm trying to do here is give you just a flavor of what it is we tried to do in this chapter. We found an uneven geography of wealth and poverty. We went to these places to try to analyze who the poor are, what's happening, why these spaces are not other spaces, what sorts of histories help us understand this, what sorts of dynamics around race and class are at work. Ultimately, what we hope is that we show you in this chapter just an example of how to write a geography of social justice, to raise questions that go against the common image of this Northwest sort of beautiful place with the Space Needle and the yachts and all the rest of it, to think about the kinds of unseen geographies that are also part of our history and our present, and to think then about what we might do differently if we wanted to combat that kind of unevenness. So in that sense, the project is trying to be about public scholarship and raising questions that I think we all care great, a great deal about. So thank you for listening. And now, if you have some questions, I, I know our speakers would be thrilled to answer them. There's one. 
so the question was, you know, so what's the most surprising thing to come out of the book? Well, one is how great our undergraduate and graduate students were. <laughs> yes. And it makes the faculty proud to have yeah. students that think so much. I, I mean, for me personally, it was the rural chapter. But that's because I, my research and interests <laughs> and life, frankly, you know, um, are, are pretty urban focused and pretty Seattle focused. So um, I, you know, I learned a great deal from reading Vicky's chapter about um, that. And it, you know, it starts you wondering um, about, you know, where does my breakfast come from? Who, d who did the work uh, behind this glass of wine? And how does that place changing because of that? You know, the question, I mean, just questions like that. So for me, I would say it was the rural chapter, but there's a, I mean, it's a dense book. There's a lot there. So I think there's going to be a lot of surprises for people. Another chapter that's especially fun, and I had nothing to do with it, I'll say that very clearly, is the, there's one on global Seattle. And it's a clever chapter because it traces three globals. Um, the city, and I'm not going to remember the three. The first is... Uh, the second is hell. The second is um, global hell. Well, no. The the, first? <laughs> we need the first because it works better in order. Yeah. Competitive. Yeah, the competitive global city where Seattle has been competing in its economy with other major cities in the region or around the world. The second is the collaborative city, which is a story of Seattle in 1999 and the, uh, the movements, the social movements that came out of that moment around the WTO rallies. And the third is the curative city, which is our new model of a sort of global health, is our platform with the world. And so the sort of ways in which the city has been positioning has positioned itself uh, within the global context. And it's a really interesting story of these sort of continuing threads, but nonetheless shifts in the sort of identity of the city in a global frame. Now that's kind of a fun story, too. Yeah. And we didn't have the authors here, but in the economic geography area, there's a very interesting discussion of the competitive history of Seattle and, and how it's changed and adapted over the century. So I'll, I'll, give, you a little, I'll, I'll give you a little tease. So here, here's another. <laughs> I shouldn't find this yet. I mean, one of the things about the book is I shouldn't find stuff like this surprising, but I do. But this is a graph of uh, Boeing employment from 1955 to 2009. And uh, you can, I mean, you can kind of trace your, you know, what were you doing in Seattle then and what was the economy like? And um, that, that's one of my favorites, personally. So 50. Future political geographies, Dick? Well, of course, there have been proposals to have uh, Eastern Washington, Eastern Oregon have a, 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 be a separate state with Northern Idaho, but those kind of political changes don't actually happen. But, uh, and it's interesting also that Eastern Washington used to be moderately democratic, and we had a Speaker of the House in Spokane. And so it's amazing the, the degree of polarization that's happened in the last 20 years. When Seattle, in fact, my section of Seattle on Capitol Hill had several Republican representatives in the legislature in the, in the early 70s. It's something very amazing has changed and not altogether healthy. Dick, do you care to make a prediction on the, where the new uh, congressional uh, district will be? No, no. <laughs> that, I mean, that's what I think of immediately when, when, when I heard your question. That's is. a nice fight. And that it's what's so interesting to sort of think about your question is, is that we are a, 
and I suspect Oregon's quite similar in this respect, that we are the kind of space, the state of Washington is the kind of space where that kind of political polarization plays out very literally on the landscape, yeah, between the east and west side. I mean, it's not a pure split, obviously, it's more messy than that, but there's a way in which you could think about this space as a divided one in that sense. And I, I can envision a radical change in the overall political structure, but I think what we will have is a sort of... Um, a meeting in the middle and a struggle in the middle over our politics as a state um, that will sort of neutralize tendencies on both sides. Yeah. And Suburbia is the battleground and yeah. that's about half the population of the state are in right. the suburbs. So right. That's when they're sort of split between the anti-city ideology and the, and the pro-city. Yeah. This is not uncommon. It's true of Colorado, Minnesota, many states. So last, last question. Do you think it's possible that rural Washington might simply disappear other than as a place <laughs> from which resources are imported? Uh, I don't think so. I think cities are not as popular as we like to believe. And there's, some eastern Washington cities are actually growing quite rapidly. And eastern Washington grew as fast as western Washington did these last 10 years. Wenatchee's doing very well. Spokane is yeah. picking up. Yakima, I think uh, uh, Seattle is, exaggerates its its power <laughs> in, in popularity. And the truth is, uh, truth in advertising, social scientists don't know what the future is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> We're not, um, well, thank you, thank you all for coming, and thank our speakers. Yes, thank for you all very lovely. much. This podcast was presented by the Seattle Public Library and Foundation and made possible by your contributions to the Seattle Public Library Foundation. Thanks for listening.